turn to Matthew chapter 14. As you're doing that, just going to make the observation that all of you already have, that we have these uh, new screens, and you're probably getting used to it or figuring out where's the best sight line to sit. Uh, and the balcony, it, it's really good with a direct view that you haven't had before, and down here it may feel a little bit high till we get used to these things. But we're making some adjustment. I appreciate the new projectors have more intensity in terms of the color and the background and that, and so uh, you can... I uh, just uh, appreciate the changes that are taking place here, and we'll probably be making some adjustments as we go along in this too. All right, today we're going to look at Matthew chapter 14. Uh, I'm not going to cover the whole passage, going to pick out sections that I'm going to focus on, primarily the feeding of the 5,000. But I'd like to pray for us as we begin. Please keep your Bibles open, and I'm going to refer to the passages as we go along. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for the miracles that you did and which the disciples recorded so that we might see and know who Jesus is too. And Lord, I pray that today we would have a sense of what it must have been like to have sat in that crowd and witnessed the feeding of the 5,000, the multiplication of the loaves and the fishes, and to recognize the unique power of Jesus the only one who can satisfy our deepest needs. And we come to you in prayer today, and we pray that you would break this bread of your word today and feed our souls. In Jesus' name, amen. Tim Addington is the director of the International Ministries for the Evangelical Free Church. It's called Reach Global. And about four years ago, he went through a medical crisis that would change his life forever. He wrote a book about it called When Life Comes Undone, and here's what he said. December 4th, 2007 is one of those indelibly imprinted dates on my family. I woke that morning unable to breathe with great pain in my chest and sides. I'm not one who easily goes to the doctor, so my wife Mary Ann was surprised when I readily agreed to go to the emergency room. I knew I was in trouble but I had no idea how much trouble I was in and that I should never have left the hospital alive. As soon as a bed was available, I was sent to the intensive care unit where I would stay for 32 days with massive pneumonia. Within a week, I only had 30% of my lung capacity available for breathing. The other 70% was filled with fluid. But the medical professionals could not diagnose the cause and the antibiotics were not working to stem this slide into a critical life-threatening situation. Because his breathing was so severe, they decided to put him into a drug-induced coma, intubate him, and put him on a ventilator as they tried to determine the cause of the pneumonia. And then they discovered that that he had a highly dreaded and difficult MRSA pneumonia. They started to try different treatments with a cocktail of antibiotics, hoping that that would work, allowing him to survive. But the treatment did not work, and his condition got worse. He developed fluid in the lining of the lungs, had to have that drained. Fluid continued to build up in his lungs, which led to respiratory failure and 18 days on a ventilator. The complications of that damaged his lungs, resulted in a severe inflammatory process where he started to drown in his own fluids. 
There were several points along this process where the family was called in thinking this may be it. This is going to be the end. Septic shock set in. One of the valves in his heart failed. His heart was beating at 240 beats per minute trying to keep up and bring blood supply to his organs. And then he goes, just to keep life interesting, I also developed a brain inflammation, encephalopathy. And all of that just compounded. He would spend 42 days in the hospital, 32 of them in intensive care, and six weeks after his discharge before he could go back to work, and then only part-time. It was an extreme condition that he went through, and only by God's grace was he able to survive and get back to work as he has. It was an event that changed his life. One of those moments where you feel like one day you're healthy, and then the next day something else like this happens, a crisis, and life comes undone. Life can do that for all of us. You know, there are times when people are excited. You're going to have your first child. You're looking forward to bringing the baby home. And the baby is born and you find out that there are complications with your child's health. And he may have a rare condition, something called trisomy 13 or trisomy 18. You've been working at the same job for a number of years and it feels like, you know, this has been good. You're doing okay. You know, God's providing. And then one day you're called in and you find out your job has been terminated and you are no longer employed and life comes undone. You've been married for a number of years. You've had your struggles. You know, things maybe are tough at times, but you weren't expecting your spouse to walk in and say, I don't love you anymore and express their desire for a divorce. And life comes undone. These are real-life situations. And we as Christians are not immune from the trials that can come to our life. We live in a fallen world and bad things do happen. And the issue is not so much why they happen, as what do we do when they happen? How do we deal with those trials? Where do we turn? And the message of the passage we're looking at today is this, that in times of trouble, we need to turn to Christ with our needs. In times of trouble, we need to turn to Christ with our needs. Now let me share with you this morning four reasons why that is so important. Number one, human solutions can't solve all our problems. We know that, don't we? Human solutions can't solve all our problems. Try as hard as we might, we can't fix everything that's going on in our life or in our world. Now this is where I want to give you the background to this text because I think it's important. If you go to the end of chapter 13, you're going to see that final story that's there when Jesus went to his hometown. And you see this passage where he makes those words that only in his hometown and in his own house is a prophet without honor. He went to his hometown. He spoke in the synagogue. He tried to do some miracles. The people were amazed, but they began to question him. Where did this man get his wisdom? Where did he get these miraculous powers? Isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't his mother's name Mary? And aren't his brothers James and Joseph, Simon and Judas? Aren't all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. Rather than rejoicing, or rather 
than being amazed at who Jesus is in a reverent way, they took offense. It's hard to understand, isn't it? And because of it, verse 58 says that Jesus could not do many miracles there because of their lack of faith. So here is Jesus going on in his ministry, most of it in the region of Galilee. He goes back to Nazareth and he is rejected by the very people that he grew up among. And then in chapter 14, Matthew places this story of the murder of John the Baptist. And it says, At that time Herod the Tetrarch heard reports about Jesus, and he said to his attendants, This is John the Baptist. He is risen from the dead. That's why these miraculous powers are at work in him. And Matthew tells us the story of how Herod murdered John the Baptist. That Herod was offended by John's preaching. John was calling attention to Herod's unlawful marriage to Herodias. Uh, she had been married to Philip. Philip was still alive. Uh, Herod Antipas had kind of tried to pull her away and they had gotten into this secret relationship that then became known and he ends up taking away this man's wife and marrying her and John condemned it. And he's preaching from the Old Testament Scriptures, called attention to this event, and Herod wanted to kill John because of what he was saying. But he was afraid of the people. The crowd knew that John was a prophet, a man sent from God. And so here you have this tension. So Herod puts John in prison. John continues to be outspoken. People are coming to him. And so finally, Herodias, his wife, sets up this plot. And she has her daughter dance for Herod and his friends at a banquet. And she dances in such a way that Herod uh, is so uh, taken by it that he says, that whatever you want, I'll give to you. And prompted by her mother, she says, give me here on a platter the head of John the Baptist. And John is killed by the whim and the wish of this evil woman. Now Jesus hears this news. And it says in verse 13, When Jesus heard what had happened, he withdrew by boat privately to a solitary place. Jesus wanted to get alone. He was grieving. John was his cousin, if you remember that. And he grieved over the death of this good man. I share these things to call attention to what Matthew is doing here. He is setting up this miracle, the feeding of the 5,000, by telling us that Jesus identifies with our needs. Jesus understands the world in which we live, and He has compassion on us. He's not removed from our sorrows and afflictions, but He's one who has experienced in this life the evil, the fallenness, the cruelty that there can be in our world. And so he understands the kinds of things that we may go through in this life. And he has compassion on us. You can see in verse 13 where it continues that he withdrew by by boat privately to a solitary place. But hearing of this, the crowds followed him on foot from the towns. And when Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them. And he healed their sick. Jesus wanted to be alone, but when he saw the needs of the crowd, he ministered to them, he cared for them, and he healed their sick. 
And then as evening approached, the disciples came to him and said, This is a remote place, and it's already getting late. Send the crowds away so that they can go to the villages and buy themselves some food. And Jesus replied, They do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. Now this is where the story gets interesting. The hour is late, the crowds are getting hungry, and there is a problem. There isn't enough food to feed all of the people that are there. They don't have restaurants nearby like we do. They don't have, you know, unlimited food in an area where they could just go pick something up and come back. There is a great need here. And the obvious answer to the disciples is to send them away. But Jesus said, no, you give them something to eat. You do this. The disciples kind of looked at each other, probably, and the disciples did what we all do when we are faced with a problem. They looked for a human solution. I mean, isn't that the first thing we do when we are confronted with a problem, whether it's a, you know, a car breaks down or whether it's a need that we have at work or a decision that needs to be made? So often we just immediately look on the surface of things. We look for a human solution. And the disciples did that too. Jesus said no to them, though, because he wanted them to learn a far greater lesson. If they were going to make it as disciples, it would be by his power and not their own. If they were going to be able to carry out the ministry that he was going to give to them, then they would need to rely upon God and not their own strength. It's the same for us. We need to come to God and receive from Him our daily bread. We need Him every single moment of every day. In John 15:5, Jesus said, I am the vine and you are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. If you think about a branch and you think about a vine, you know those branches, if they are cut off, they wither and die. They're fit only to be burned up. They're not going to bear fruit when they are cut off from the vine. And so Jesus is saying that daily we need to find our life and our strength, our power, through Him, if we're going to succeed as His disciples. Human solutions can't solve all the problems. We see that in our world on a macro level too. I think about how our government for the past decade has been fighting this war on drugs in our country, trying to stem the tide of illegal drugs coming into our country. We have spent $1 trillion to try and stop and solve the problem of drugs. And yet we still have a drug problem in this country. The problem is not the amount of money that we throw at things, it's the heart. And it's not saying that it's, it's wrong to try. I'm not saying we should give up trying to stop those things. We should continue to work. But it becomes very apparent that just throwing money at a problem or all the enforcement that we try to do cannot solve the problem ultimately. It's a heart issue. We've also spent about $2 trillion trying to fight terrorism and two wars and terrorism is still a threat. We still live in a fallen world in which these things are real. And we, with all of our power and military might, cannot eliminate them totally. Again, it doesn't mean we should give up or stop trying. 
What it does mean is we need the Lord to do what only He can do, to change hearts and lives. And secondly, what we see in this passage is that our resources are limited. That God's resources are unlimited. So doesn't it make sense that we would look to Him? The disciples hear this statement from Jesus that they are to give Him, they are to give the people something to eat. And so what they do in verse 17 is they look around, see what they've got, and they say, we have here only five loaves of bread and two fish. The disciples took an inventory of their resources and they came up with what would be five small barley loaves and two small fish. Not very much when it comes to 5,000 some men that are there, is it? If they were in uh, Lindstrom, maybe, or they're in a Scandinavian country, they'd say, we have a little pickled herring and some flatbread. You know, and that's just not quite going to cut it, is it? It turns out that the bread and the fish weren't even theirs. They belonged to a small boy who had had the foresight to bring his lunch with. And he's the only guy, apparently, near the disciples who has some food. What are they going to do? Philip makes the observation in John's Gospel that eight months' wages would not be enough bread for each one to have one bite. I mean, what are we going to do? We don't have that kind of bread, that kind of money to go out and buy enough to feed all of these people. It was an impossible situation. And I believe that's exactly what Jesus wanted them to see. There was no way that they could meet this need on their own they would have to rely upon him. In fact, John tells us in John 6, 6, that Jesus asked this question only to test him, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. Isn't that interesting? Jesus already knew what he was going to do. He's just setting up the disciples. He's just saying, okay, guys, you give them something to eat. Sometimes God backs us into a corner with no place else to turn, so we will learn to trust Him. Because it's so easy for us to just rely on our own skills or intelligence or wisdom or resources and to just kind of function as though we don't need the Lord when we really do. And so there are times when God brings into our life circumstances that force us to trust Him. Some of you may be going through unemployment or maybe you are looking for a different job. And it is hard to wait when you're doing that. You know, you pray, you send out your resumes, you network, you talk with other people that you know, you do everything that you can, but ultimately you need to wait on God to open the right door. Again, our son Matt is doing that in terms of a ministry situation, just praying and waiting for God to open the right door for a church to call. But there's nothing he can do to push that door open. He must wait upon the Lord. Sometimes it happens with illness or medical problems or when medical bills pile up and you feel like, man, this is beyond the resources I have to take care of it. It can seem overwhelming and we do what uh, we can. We do the best that we can. We try to take care of those situations promptly with the resources that we have, but ultimately we must wait upon God to bring healing or to provide the resources that we need. It is true in every area of our life, God often puts us into circumstances where we, we can do our part, but we have to wait upon Him 
to meet our needs. And what we see in this text, thirdly, is that when we turn to Christ with our needs, we are blessed and God gets the glory. We are blessed and God gets the glory. Look at verses 18 to 21. Jesus said to the disciples, Bring them here to me. And he directed the people to sit down on the grass and taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and he broke the loaves. And then he gave them to the disciples and the disciples gave them to the people. They all ate and were satisfied and the disciples picked up twelve basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. The number of those who ate was about 5,000 men besides women and children. So what did Jesus do here? Jesus took their limited resources and he blessed them and he multiplied them. What does he ask us to do? He asks us to bring what we have. To come to him with our abilities, our talents, the resources we have and put them in his hands and he takes them and he uses them far beyond what we would imagine. Over 5,000 people ate that day and all of them were satisfied. 5,000, we are told, is just the number of the men who were there. Uh, The feeding of the 5,000 may have actually been the feeding of the 15,000 or the 20,000 when you add in the number of women and children who also came along to see Jesus and to hear Him. I mean, we really don't know the number of people that were there. But that's extraordinary. As they sat on that open field and they spread out there in different groups of maybe 10 or 50 or 100, and the disciples came to them and began to distribute the bread and the loaves and seeing this unending supply coming, it would be a little bit like that guy in that video going, it was amazing. We didn't see any fire to cook the fish. We didn't see any bread being baked. But more and more kept coming. And when the broken pieces were collected, there were twelve basketfuls left over, enough for each disciple. Do you think that was a coincidence, or do you think there was a message there too? Jesus chose to work through the disciples. He chooses to work through you and me. He accomplishes His ministry, His purposes through the church, through us, when we are obedient to Him. And He uses you and me to be a witness for Christ, to introduce somebody to Jesus. He uses us to be His hands and feet, to bless someone, to pray with someone, to help someone when they are in need. Jesus works through us. And when we bring to Him our needs again in that process, we are blessed and He gets the glory. I mean, this was a miracle. There's no other way about it. It was a miracle and God was glorified by it. But whose lives were blessed? The disciples. And those who ate that day were blessed. And what we see again in this passage is Jesus is the only one who can meet our real needs. And He often does it through people. People like you and like me. I'm sure all of us are familiar with the story of Johnny Erickson Tata, who was paralyzed in a diving accident as a teenager. She's about the same age that I am. It happened a number of years ago, and she has lived her life as a quadriplegic. That's not easy at all, as you can imagine. 
And she writes this in one of her devotionals. She said, while having lunch with another quadriplegic friend, I started talking about the help and encouragement that I've received from my relationship with Christ. My friend, however, wasn't happy at all about that turn in our conversation. And he said this, Jesus can't help me, he frowned. It isn't Jesus who helps me with this sandwich, it's my friend here. And he motioned to the person sitting next to him who was cutting up his food. And Jesus doesn't put me to bed at night or get me up in the morning or get me a drink of water. Jesus doesn't do that stuff for me. It's people I need. And Johnny made this comment. She said, what a short-sighted view this man had of our God. All he could think of was the immediate and the urgent needs of his paralysis. He couldn't look past his handicap. The Apostle Paul had some advice for people who get short-sighted about their suffering. Bruised and battered, he writes in the second book of Corinthians, chapter 1, that he was under great pressure, far beyond his ability to endure, and he made this statement, that this happened that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God. These things happened that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God. She said, being a quadriplegic means I have no use of my hands or legs. And just like my friend, I need someone else to floss my teeth or to hold a cup to my lips so I can drink. Somebody has to tuck my blouse in when it pulls out of my slacks. If I get too hot, someone has to reach for the ice or the fan. Someone has to help me in and out of bed. There's hardly an hour of the day that I don't rely on the willing hands and feet of others. But I've learned not to be so short-sighted about my disability and the people who help me. It is Jesus who feeds me my sandwich after all. He's the one who provides that friend sitting next to me just as he provides the food. It is Jesus who lovingly works through my husband when when he helps me in bed at night. And it is Jesus who brings people to help me in the morning. I do need Jesus. And if I ever ask you to help me with a sandwich or hold a cup of coffee for me, I'll smile and say thanks, but I will give him the glory. Do we see God at work all around us through the people that he has brought into our life or through his provision or through the ability that we have to work? God wants us to recognize that all of those things are gifts from His hands. And then He wants to realize the great privilege and opportunity that we have to serve others. That we, the church, are to be His hands and feet in the world. And whatever we do for others in the name of Jesus, we do it as though we were serving Him. That's what Jesus says. You know, the other thing that I think about when it comes to bringing Jesus our needs and placing them in His hands, is how God can even take the difficult or the hard things in our life and use them for good. This past week, I was at a Michael Card concert, and Michael Card was sharing about the house in which he grew up and how his father was a doctor and he was a good man, but he was a man who was sadly unavailable to Michael at many times in his youth. His dad would come home from a long day at the hospital and he would go into his study and shut the door. And Michael Card shared how as a young boy how he longed for his father's attention and affection but didn't get it. And how even as a little boy there would be times when he would come to the door 
to his father's study and he would wiggle his fingers under the door. Dad, are you in there? You know, Dad, here I am. And he would color pictures and he would slide them and put them under the door and kind of send things back and forth to his dad. He longed for that. He longed for that kind of relationship. And it was hard not to receive that in the way that he wanted. But one day he was going and talking with a friend and his friend made this observation to Michael. He said, Michael, I know who you really are. You're still that little boy who's calling for attention and who's wiggling his fingers under the door. He's a storyteller. He tells stories through music and he shares his heart. And he actually wrote a song about that where he understood The part of those experiences in his life that were hard or difficult are the very things that made him who he is today. They were part of what God redeemed, if you will, and used those difficult things to shape his life and to make him usable. God can do that if we will surrender our wounds to him and not allow them to be something that creates distance in our relationship with God or allows them to be a barrier or to bring up bitterness in our life. But instead, when we place those in God's hands, He can use them and redeem them. Beth Moore has shared similar things about her past and the abuse that she experienced and how God used that, though, and redeemed that and has changed her heart and made her the person that He wanted her to be. It's not saying that those difficult things were good in and of themselves, but it is saying something about the greatness of our God who can take our difficult experiences in life and turn them into something He can use for good. The final reason why we should turn to Christ with our needs is seen in the last story that Matthew records in chapter 14. It is a story that tells us that Jesus is Lord and God. Let's take a look at it. Immediately Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to the other side. When it says there that Jesus made the disciples get into the boat, that is a strong word that is used in Greek there. It means he literally compelled them to get into the boat. They didn't want to do this. They didn't want to leave Jesus. Jesus wanted to be alone and he sent them away. Right, And after he had dismissed them, He went up on a mountainside by himself to pray, and when evening came, he was there alone. But the boat was already a considerable distance from land, buffeted by the waves because the wind was against it. If you read this in all of the Gospels, the stories that are told there, you'll find some differences there. And uh, in one Gospel, in Mark's Gospel, it says that Jesus wanted them to go to Capernaum, excuse me, to Bethsaida. And in the other Gospel, it says he wanted them to go to Capernaum. And what it seems to be, if you reconcile that, is that Jesus was in this remote place where the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000 took place. And he probably said something like this, that I want you to go to Bethsaida and meet me there. And if I don't come, if I'm not there, continue across the lake and I'll meet you at Capernaum. Because they uh, pulled in, according to Mark, at Bethsaida. Again, he's not there. They continue out in the water that night. And it is during the fourth watch of the night, sometime between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m., in the middle of the night when it is at its darkest, that Jesus comes to them. It said when, 
When evening came, he was there alone, but the boat was already a considerable distance from the land, buffeted by the waves because the wind was against it. And then during the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went out to them, walking on the lake. When the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. It is a ghost, they said, and they cried out in fear. But but Jesus immediately said to them, Take courage, it is I. Don't be afraid. Take courage, it is I. Don't be afraid. Now I know when we look at this miracle, as we did um, earlier in the year, uh, we often focus on Peter. And Jesus responds to Peter, and Peter taking the step out of the boat and walking on the water until he began to look at the wind and waves and he sank. That is a significant part of the story, but I want to focus on Jesus today in the telling of this story. And what we see in this story is that when Jesus came to them walking on the water, he was doing something that the Old Testament says that only God can do. God alone stretches out the heavens, and God alone treads on the waves of the sea. And I believe that those disciples, they knew that passage. They knew what Job had said. That God alone is the one who created the universe and God alone is the one who can walk on the waves of the sea. So when Jesus came to them that night, he was doing something that only God can do. And secondly, when Jesus said, take courage, it is I, what he was actually doing was applying to himself the personal name of God, Yahweh, which means I am. It is I, It's the same kind of form in Greek that you find in Hebrew where God said to Moses, I am who I am. I am. Jesus is making this powerful claim that he is the all-sufficient one. That he is the one who is able to meet their needs. He is the one who is the ruler of the wind and the waves. And when he got into the boat and the wind died down and the storm subsided... The climax of the story comes in verse 33 when those who were in the boat worshipped Him and they said, Truly, You are the Son of God. They had seen a miracle that was even greater than the feeding of the 5,000. I mean, that was astounding. But now they had seen Jesus come to them in the middle of the night coming as only God can do, declaring that He is God and showing His power both in calming the storm and in walking on the waves. And they worshipped him as the Son of God. Max Lucado imagined what it would have been like if one of the disciples had made an entry in his journal the next morning. Can you imagine that? You're sitting there and you're writing out your thoughts and he said it probably went something like this. I had never seen Jesus as I saw him then. I had seen him as powerful. I had seen him as wise. I had witnessed his authority and marveled at his abilities. But I witnessed last night, I know I'll never forget. I saw God. The God who can't sit still when the storm is too strong. The God who lets me get frightened enough to need him and then comes close enough for me to see him. The God who uses my storms as his path to come to me I saw God. It took a storm for me to see Him, 
but I saw him and I'll never be the same. Have you experienced that in your life and in your circumstances? Have you gone through trials in your life where you knew that there's no way you're going to fix this or solve it or take care of it? But in the midst of your pain or suffering or trial, you saw God. God showed up and He did a work that only He could do. And you were changed and your life will never be the same. Why do we come to Jesus with our needs? It is because only Jesus can meet our deepest needs. Only Jesus can calm the storms and only He can calm our heart. Only Jesus is Lord and God. Today as we close, what I'd like to do is this. I'm going to give you a brief time for silent prayer. And I know that when we meet, all of us have different things that are on our heart, concerns that we have, needs that we're aware of. might be personal, might be for someone else in your family or a friend. And I just want you quietly in your own heart to bring them to Jesus today, and then I'm going to close in prayer. Let's do that. Father, as we come into your presence today, you know the needs that are on our heart, and we just bring them before you now. And Jesus, we lay these needs at your feet. It may be for healing. It may be for a job. It may be for reconciliation in a marriage. It might be a prayer for a wayward son or daughter. Maybe it's someone who doesn't know the Lord yet and your greatest desire is to see them come to know Jesus as Savior. God, you hear our prayers. You're the same God yesterday, today, and forever. And Jesus, you entered into our world. You know our suffering. You know our afflictions. You know the cry of our